Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. When you think of the ocean, what comes to mind? Rolling waves and the soft pounding of the surf? Boating? Fishing? Cocktails at sundown? While you're relaxing and enjoying these sights and sounds, remember this. The ocean doesn't rest. In fact, it never stops working. Indeed, without our oceans and all they offer, life as we know it would not exist. Over 70% of our planet's oxygen is produced by the ocean. 90% of Earth's heat is absorbed by it. And because of the amount of carbon we humans dump into the atmosphere, the oceans are 30% more acidic than ever before. The changing temperature and makeup of our open waters is bad enough, but as if to add insult to injury, annually we dump 8 million tons of plastic into the ocean, destroy tens of thousands of kilometers of coastal wetlands to make way for resorts and housing developments, and have so overfished the seas that by 2048, all seafood as we know it will be gone. Unless, that is, we do something about it. That's the bad news. Now here's the good news. The world is waking up to the power and importance of our oceans. We have science to thank for that, but also a rising consciousness among politicians and industrialists who see that failure to protect our oceans will most assuredly result in social and economic chaos. Nothing like the threat of losing power or profit to drive some positive behavior change. At the epicenter is Asia, which represents over 90% of global fish and seafood farming and almost half of all commercial fishing. Here to talk about oceans and the challenges we face is Jack Kittinger, a senior director at Conservation International and head of its Center for Oceans. We'll come to the discussion shortly, but first a word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now here's my conversation with Jack. Jack, welcome to Inside Asia. Um, before we get started, tell our listeners about yourself and something about the work you do. Well, thanks for inviting me on. I lead the fisheries and aquaculture program at Conservation International, a large environmental nonprofit that works in 40 countries across the planet on the role of nature in supporting humanity. And I'm also a professor of practice at the uh, Global Futures Laboratory and School of Sustainability at Arizona State University, with whom we have a deep partnership to advance, explore, and implement solutions to the conservation challenges we all face. Yeah, I'd like to touch on that later in the conversation, if you don't mind. But uh, before we go there, um, let's start big picture uh, with this question. How central is the role of the oceans as a balancing force within the ecosystem? How about that? Sure. I mean, it's the most salient habitat on the planet, right? <laughs> it covers a little over 71% of the planet. And um as far as an economic driver, it couldn't be more important. And as far as its role in our climate and our well-being, uh, it's, it's paramount. I mean, there's a lot of statistics you could share, but in essence, you know, we have an existential threat with some of the things that are unfolding with respect to the loss of biodiversity and habitat and now climate stress, which is fundamentally changing the nature of that ecosystem and therefore fundamentally changing the options that we have. Uh, which you know are pretty important to us, given the reliance we have on the ocean for our global economy. 
Yeah, and that's the question. I mean, what what's the big issue here? Is is it the ocean's central role in carbon capture? Is it the threat of rising ocean levels? Is uh, the ocean as a source of food for half the world? In other words, where do we put our time and resources? Resources, or is it all connected? Well, I think we can boil it down, and this is just one person's opinion, to three things, and that is protection, production, and people. Uh, the science is very clear on the protection side. We need to protect in robust marine reserves in protected areas, at least 30% of the ocean. And by that, I mean 30% of all the critical habitats that make up the ocean environment, coral reefs, mangroves, seagrasses, the open ocean, the pelagic realm, the deep sea. Uh, they all have, just like the terrestrial part of our planet, a lot of diverse types of habitats and places. We've got to protect 30% of that. Um, that's something that the global conservation community is focused on. It's something that the governments of the world are increasingly focused on. And it's something that business leaders are increasingly focused on. At the same time, we rely on production, right? I mean, that drives the economy, the production of goods and services. And the ocean is a huge economic driver. It's the biggest food system on the planet for one. Uh, it's the, uh, the world's protein factory. It feeds about a billion people. And we have to ensure that those food webs and the species that they support can continue to support the several hundred million jobs that are tied directly to oceanic production sectors and that it can continue to feed the world. And lastly, we've got to keep community priorities at the forefront. And that's the people side of this. It's easy to think just about habitats and reefs and fish and that sort of thing. But the ocean-reliant communities of the world are not outside of the global DEI movement that is reshaping the way in which the world works. So the basic rights of people, uh, such as the right to food, the right to nutrition, the right to a clean and safe environment, that's paramount for the ocean-dependent communities of the world and the ocean-dependent industries of the world. Has thinking about conservation and management of the oceans changed over the last 25, 30 years? In other words, is there a greater recognition of the need to protect communities and think about the economy versus conservation at all costs? That's a vibrant issue space and one that continues to evolve. Um, around about 40 to 50 years ago, I'd say the ethos was pretty squarely focused on, and this stretches back you know, to ideologies, at least in the Western world, that you know, predate the last few decades. Um, the ideologies have focused on protecting habitat at all costs. And of course, that has, um, there's a long history here of how that has run afoul of the basic rights of people, including indigenous peoples. Hmm. I'd say the conservation agenda now has never been more people-focused in general um, at the global scale, but there still is always this healthy tension about you know, how to do that in the right way. And that's something that unfolds in a very place-based fashion. But essentially, you know, the, there's broad agreement that the development in agenda, that is the, the lifting of people out of poverty and the su supporting, you know, green and sustainable economies has to go alongside and hand in hand with the protection of the basic ecological functioning of ecosystems. You know, this is, this is something that's just an imperative. Now, it's an imperative now. I think people are sort of waking up to that at a global scale in a way that we haven't seen before, because the sort of perturbations that we're getting from climate and storms and um, 
the loss of ecosystems is just rippling throughout the world. And in some ways, you know, you can look at the global pandemic that we've had from COVID-19 and think about that as training wheels for the disasters to come uh, that will assuredly come. I mean, the science on that with climate is very clear. Yeah, great. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, challenges that are that are that are being faced. Uh, if you were to grade the improvements and advances we made in land-based agriculture, for instance, versus innovations in aquaculture, how have we done? Well, aquaculture is following this uh, pathway of in- of intensification that we saw to some extent with the green revolution, but it's not following it evenly. That is for things like salmon aquaculture, some of the methods that folks have used in um, animal husbandry have been applied quite sec- successfully to intensify uh, the, the sector. Now that's had a lot of environmental impacts, of course, but it's also led to uh, the creation of a whole set of industries. So, you know, there's this, this intensification of the aquaculture sector that's continued to grow and you know, people, a lot of people don't know this, but aquaculture, 90% of which, by the way, is it happens in Asia, right? Mm, this is mm. where Asia is the aquaculture uh, sector. That's all there. Yeah. And aquaculture has been the fastest growing food sector on the planet for 30 years globally. And this is at a time where we've seen all sorts of innovation in agriculture and all sorts of things. So um, it is a massively growing sector. And one, quite frankly, that we have got to get a handle on because in coastal zones, it has eradicated huge swaths of mangrove habitat and had a huge impact on coastal communities and on our carbon problem. Yeah, tell us more about that, because I think the implications of aqua farming or, or aquaculture aren't fully understood. Yeah, there's, um, there's several, you know, there's something like 600 species that are cultivated, right, in aquaculture, everything from seaweeds to bivalves, like mussels and fin fish and so on. And one of the most cultivated things are shrimp, which everyone's probably familiar with. And, uh, and shrimp is grown almost exclusively in Southeast Asia at volume in India, China, Indonesia, Thailand, and elsewhere. There are, is obviously a shrimp aquaculture sector in Latin America as well, but the vast majority of it is in Asia. And these are largely grown in ponds in the coastal zone. And those ponds are largely created by eradicating coastal habitat, primarily mangroves. And mangroves are super trees. They sequester carbon at a scale that outpaces terrestrial trees. It's unbelievable the amount of carbon that these ecosystems sequester. And they also provide natural defenses for coastal communities. And um, as we eradicate those mangroves, we, we essentially remove the natural infrastructure that protects our coastlines. We turn a carbon sink into a carbon source for greenhouse gas emissions. And Oftentimes, the actual uh, practice of raising shrimp in these ponds creates a lot of effluent and pollution. Now, all this can be reversed, and we can do aquaculture in a climate-smart way, uh, in a smaller footprint, and restore mangroves, and do that through carbon credits, and ensure that sustainable production practices are prevalent and not the exception to the rule. And there's a pathway for that, but we've got to have commitment from the private sector and from governments to do it. 
So I guess that's what I'm asking. Is it a little bit of catching up to do? In other words, some of these land-based farming techniques have improved management of water, uh, hybrid crops. Uh, it, it seems like the innovations and the technologies have been applied and even the practices to get a better result with lower uh, uh, um, damage. But I don't feel, or at least it's, it feels to me, as if the same types of capabilities haven't yet been applied to aquaculture. Uh, is that your impression or is it just going on quietly behind the scenes and it's just not receiving the attention? Well, I think you're broadly right there, but it's ramping up, okay. right? There's all sorts of things that are used in the farming sector, financial instruments, for example, that are just now starting to be tried out in the aquaculture sector hmm. and technologies have so much promise, um, we're still, I think it's fair to say we're somewhat at an analog model that's increasingly becoming digital with respect to aquaculture farming. But it's also a very, um, it's also a sector that's seeing a lot of consolidation uh, from a business perspective. And, you know, keep in mind, this is a sector that employs tons, you know, millions of small scale producers. Mm. So it's, a, it's, you know, for the governments of a lot of these places where this sector is prevalent, it's a great job generation a machine, but we have to ensure those jobs are sustainable. Well, what's the path forward, Jack? Is it, is it, is it around public-private initiatives? Is it uh, impact investing, uh, private equity, uh, government regulations? What can be done, knowing what we know, in order to get a faster result in a more effective way? Well, you have to have commitments from the private sector to drive transparency and accountability in the supply chain. At the same time, there is, you know, there's no replacement for good governance. And so the governments of the region are uh, increasingly looking at their aquaculture sector as areas for growth. Lots of governments have actually established growth targets for the aquaculture sector. And the question is, how do you ensure growth without also underwriting the destruction of habitat? And there is a way to do that and to sustain, sustainably intensify your production in a smaller footprint while also driving you know, carbon sequestration and pollution abatement. So it's going to take a, a mix of public and private incentives and commitments to get there. Global demand for seafood continues to rise, and it will for the foreseeable future. So um, the development and the rapid growth of the aquaculture sector we've seen over the past few decades has not been paired up with a decrease in demand for fish from wild capture fisheries. In fact, that demand is just going to escalate. Yeah. Um, and that demand is being driven by two things. One is more important than the other. The first is population growth, and that's important. But the other thing that's actually more important is increasing affluence. It's shifting dietary preferences and uh, the rise of the middle class in Asia, for example, is... Um, just creating more demand. So, you know, there's no fish that doesn't get sold in that market. Hmm. Uh, and in the commercial fishery sector, there are huge challenges here. Keep in mind, this is the last thing on earth that we hunt at scale. So right. <laughs> everything else you eat, if you think about what you eat, hmm. that is the only thing we still hunt really. Hmm. And it is a, you know, it's, it's a, you can directly tie the health of the ocean to this, right? Because if those populations are not maintained, the hunting is poor and the fishing stops. Yeah. And when you have illegal and unregulated 
fishing. What you have is essentially is anarchy in an unmanaged system. And you challenge the ability of that population to maintain itself because everyone is taking. Yeah. Dare I mention Seaspiracy, which was the documentary on Netflix, which has uh, raised awareness significantly around these issues of illegal commercial fishing, but also I was marginally problematic. I think some of its uh, some of its references were taken out of context. I don't know precisely, but you know, do you believe that you know the kinds of issues that were flagged in that documentary were largely accurate and consistent with your understanding of the situation? Well, the documentary did a good job of raising the salience of these issues in the global conscience, and that. For that, uh, you know, it should be lauded, but it did play fast with the facts. I think a lot of folks have sort of um, pointed that out, us included. But, you know, if you look at rather than focusing on that element of you look at what the recommendations are at the end. These are things that groups like ours have, have been pushing on for years. And we do have to get a handle on illegal fishing. Everyone agrees, you know, on that. And we do have to establish protected areas. We do have to um, protect uh, 30%. Now, you know, uh, people's consumption is a personal choice, right? With respect to whether or not you consume fish or not. But that also is a choice that not all people have. Uh, there are a lot of vulnerable communities um, that are highly reliant on fisheries who have no other choice but to do that. Um, and so that's a luxury that we may have in the rich world to make that choice that uh, not everyone has, but let's focus on illegality in fisheries since you brought it up. Yeah. I mean, this is an issue that uh, the world bank and others have quantified as being, you know, siphoning billions of dollars off the world economy every year. And the solution to this is to drive more accountability and oversight and enforcement at sea. And, that's something that has a technological dimension to it. Uh, we have capabilities to observe, monitor, and enforce and interdict at sea that we didn't have 10 years ago. That's going to continue to escalate. And the other thing that's happening at the same time is that governments are getting more serious about their sovereign waters. You mentioned Indonesia and, and other governments have also taken extreme actions, you know, to enforce their sovereign waters and, and to do so and to send a signal to would-be raiders that they will not tolerate illegal fishing in their zone. But we still have, as that escalates, we still have the high seas, which covers a huge amount of the planet, which is less policed. And that is the next huge frontier. While we work on it in the coastal zones and sovereign waters of countries, we have also got to turn our attention to the high seas. Yeah, and there are two issues there, uh, Jack. One is the prevalence of illegal or unregistered uh, commercial fishing. I, I like to get your feel, your your view on that. And second, the method of fishing. Um, yeah. it, it, are those being reformed, and are we seeing any positive change there? Are there still issues? Yes, both are still issues, without okay. a doubt. I mean, one of the things that made news, you know, relatively recently, was that there were several hundred Chinese uh, vessels sitting just outside the jurisdictional zone of the Galapagos fishing, mm. right? And this made international news uh, because the size of that fleet and its ability to pull fish out of the sea, and it's sitting right around what, you know, 
the Galapagos needs no introduction to anyone. I mean, it's a it's an ecological treasure. It's it's well known. It's got an incredible uh, park and reserve system that our organization and many others have spent decades helping support. And sitting right outside that zone is this massive fishing fleet that's siphoning off the the populations that are protected in that area. Other protected areas, these fishery aggregation devices are drifting through them. So there's not a fishing vessel, but a, a, a an aggregation device is drifting through, picking up fish only to be nabbed on the other side mm. by fishing fleets that are operating in the high seas and operating often with gear types that are hardly damaging. So it's the number, the prevalence, the intensity, and the method of fishing that can be quite harmful. What devices do we have at our disposal to stop this practice? And are these, are these state sanctioned or are they just illegal operators who happen to be outside or are from these certain countries? Well, those fleets are not completely unregulated, but they are far less regulated than fleets that operate within the zones of states, um, coastal states, what we call coastal states, essentially states with, you know, an EEC sovereign waters. And so there are regional fishing fishery management organizations that do oversee the high seas in those areas, but their ability to police and to enforce is very limited, very, very limited. And as such, those vessels operate primarily without much oversight, you know, other than their location and, you know, in general, uh, sort of the way they fish. So this is something that is a big frontier for us globally and something that has to do with the nature of it being a global commons. Where can pressure be brought to bear? In other words, is this a government to government? Is it multilateral? Is it a, a, a UN issue? Where can the pressure points be placed in order to get a change of behaviors? Well, one of the biggest ones right now that's certainly in the zeitgeist is the role of subsidies. And the, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, has a vigorous debate going on right now about this. And Many countries subsidize industries, right? And fisheries are no different. But these subsidies have the perverse effect of making what would be an unprofitable venture work. Mm. And it is, there's been some great science on this that has shown that a lot of these fleets that operate in the high seas would be economically unviable but for the subsidies. Mm. So there is a push to remove subsidies. And if that happens... I think that's among one of the most consequential actions we could take. Are there certain countries that are more culpable than others in that regard? Sure, of course. Um, everyone likes to point to China, which has the world's biggest fishing fleet. Um, so they're certainly one of the countries that is known to subsidize their fleets uh, at scale. Uh, there are others, um, but that is the one that I think is, has the biggest amount of focus on it right now. There are, you know, even Spain subsidizes their fleets. You know, it's not a, it's not an uncommon thing for governments you know, across the world to do this. But the the negotiations, the negotiations at the WTO would go a long way and help remove that incentive, which has the perverse effect of driving overfishing and malpractice. That's to our collective detriment. What's the prospect? Do you think it's it'll it'll resolve itself, or is this a long term endeavor? Oh, you're asking me to look in the crystal ball then. Yeah, I am indeed. It has more momentum than it has ever had. Okay. 
that being said, this is an issue that, you know, you can imagine the geopolitics behind this are significant. So I think we are cautiously optimistic that something could happen. Mm. At the same time, there's a discussion about how we can better protect the high seas, uh, which, you know, also known as areas beyond national jurisdiction through other mechanisms that the United Nations law of the sea allows for. Uh, so there's a dual discussion that has also ramifications for that very important high seas zones. And this is sort of at the crux of a paper we recently published on the climate-induced migration of tuna and the nature of how that will impact the Pacific region. Unfortunately for us all, a lot of the most indiscriminate and destructive fishing methods like bottom trawling, which you reference, are still pretty prevalent. Uh, when you trawl the ocean floor, you essentially rake it free of all the structure that exists down there that essentially you fundamentally alter the habitat. And in the deep sea, uh, the processes of the ecology of the deep sea mean that those dam that damage is permanent, mm. more or less. It mm. takes centuries, if not millennia, to recover. We have great footage in, uh, from the Northeast uh, Atlantic that where bottom trawling was done in the 1970s and we took photos and we go back and now and 50 years later, it looks exactly the same, hasn't changed a bit. So uh, the fact that we do this at scale, you know, you can imagine the, the, the harm that that can do. So we need to get more selective, more precise, and we need to get much higher levels of monitoring, control, surveillance, and enforcement of our fleets. Yeah. And some places have done that better than others. Yeah, let, let's, let's come back to land. Uh, what, what are the role of corporates? What, what can corporations do, whether you are directly or indirectly associated with a ocean economy? Um, I think the implications you've laid out are pretty clear. Uh, everybody has something to lose here or to gain uh, based on their engagement. What are the, what's the role you're looking for for private sector or for profits in order to raise awareness participate in, in restorations, uh, develop new economic models, all the above. What would you say? And are there any good examples you could share with us? Yeah, sure. The, the, the corporate sector is a huge part of the solution here. And there are lots of business leaders that have stepped up and demonstrated real commitment to the health of the oceans. And quite frankly, we're not going to get there without the business sector taking a leading role. We're certainly not going to get there fast enough. I mean, in the back of my mind and probably everyone that's in the conservation movement, there's this ticking clock, right? We have about 10 years to avoid the most calamitous impacts of the climate crisis. And we're not going to get there nearly with the level of rapidity that we need without the business leaders of today. So... What can businesses do? Well, a, a lot of businesses are stepping up and making very clear commitments to carbon, to ocean sustainability, and to sustainable sourcing. And when those commitments are followed through, they can have a tremendous impact because they demonstrate leadership at the top of these supply chains, and they drive that down to the water in an ideal setting. And if those commitments are paired with places that have made uh, investments in better governance, then those can be a powerful combination where the private sector and governments can together agree to drive change in jurisdictions. Those are essentially how you uh, 
uh, pair the business and corporate leadership with what governments can do on the policy side. Yeah, you, you, you've hit on the corporate purpose bugaboo there. Um, you know, it's one thing to declare. It's another thing to be able to uh, determine with clarity that it's being carried out. Um, and yeah. particularly in situations in rural or, or undeveloped countries or whether it's fragmented, you know, fisheries or farmers or fishers, you just have a situation where it's very difficult uh, to, to be able to, to verify if in fact uh, everything that you declare that you like to do is being done, what would you? How would you respond to that? And and what's the role of a conservation international, for instance, to do to to ensure that these types of things are happening? Well, I think that you know the pace of technology is such now that these commitments can be adhered to. It's usually about cost. Can it be done in a cost-effective way? Can businesses pair up and do this in a pre-competitive way? so that you don't bear alone the cost of implementing a commitment. And that's happening in oceans with respect to seafood and traceability and other issues. It's hugely important. The regulatory environment often doesn't keep pace with that, but sort of catches up. For example, now it's illegal you know, to import any seafood into the United States market that's from illegal fishing. Uh, that program has been in place since President Obama's administration put it in place some time ago. And, uh, and the technologies to prove that your product is legal have long existed. So now that regulatory, you know, the leveling uh, of, the, of the regulatory environment, obviously the businesses that invested in that early already bore that cost and were ready to do it. Others had to certainly ramp up and bear the cost of that. Uh, but part of our job is to de-risk that both on the policy front and to work with governments to implement policy that fosters a better, more sustainable production model, and also to work with our corporate partners to understand and shape commitments that will have real impact. And that includes accountability to them. It's easy to make a commitment, as you alluded to. It takes a lot more to follow it through and to ensure that you're being accountable to it and report against it. Um, all that's work that our organization and many others do. With so much at stake, what are the areas, in your opinion, which require the greatest and most immediate attention? Uh, is, is it the fisheries? Is it the commercial fishing piece? Is it the, uh, the, the, the health of the oceans and uh, issues around pollution? What, where, where should people put their time and their energy or organizations put their time and energy? Uh, and, and, and if you can, without saying all the above, I would love to know if there are, uh, you know, what, what are the greatest potential impact resides? Hmm. Well, that is a big question. <laughs> I think there is what the private sector can do and should do and what mm. governments must do. Okay. The private sector has to hold itself to a higher level of accountability uh, with respect to the role of corporate actors in this problem. I mean, our friends at Patagonia have coined that term that there's no business on a dead planet, right? Yeah. And, you know, to some extent, that's pretty accurate for the ocean. There's no business on a, uh, on a planet with a dead ocean. But that's going to take some real follow through. I mean, I, the seafood issue alone sort of is an illustration of that. Seafood's the most traded food commodity. It moves around more than anything on Earth, right? So it's plagued by complexity because you have products, you know, if a, if a boat flagged to Taiwan, 
has an Indonesian and Nepalese crew and it ports in Suva, Fiji, and that catch is then processed in China and imported in the United States, the EU and Ecuador. You know, that's just an illustration of the complexity of this. Yeah. But when you boil it down, it's a vessel and it's a supply chain and it's a set of buyers and distributors and consumers. And that can be reshaped in such a way that respects the rights of people and respects the healthy ocean production practices. Yeah, we've we seen this before, that. right? I mean, with, with manufacturing. Yeah. I mean, garment manufacturers were That's bypassing right. tariffs and trade barriers by, you know, setting up in different areas or, or going through different ports or listing and labeling in, in different locations. Um, and they, they ultimately got hold of it and, and held them accountable. It doesn't seem like it's such a stretch to imagine the same thing could be done in the world of, of supply chains and seafood. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. And it can be done and it is being done and it's becoming more prevalent. Right. You know, we're right. about a third of the way there. We have a global target for 75% of all seafood is produced through sustainable production methods. Hmm. Globally, the conservation organizations of the world have set that target. And we're about, a th- we have about a third, roughly 35%, which means we, and that's, that's taken us 15 years to get there. Hmm. So we're going to have to get the next third twice as fast. Okay. And we're going to only do that through the power of the speed of business and corporate commissions. I mean, you know, governments must adopt regulatory provisions and invest in management systems to protect the ocean and equitably develop their blue economies. But that we know the the policy wheel turns slower than the business wheel. Has COVID-19 made this situation more difficult or less difficult? In other words, is there a greater sense of urgency because of the situation or now our economics are such where people are putting this on the back burner? Well, I want to say yes and because mm. it's sort of you, you've got evidence of both. I mean, on one hand, because of the nature of the disruption of supply chains be, from the pandemic, I mean, just to back up a second the global fresh seafood market collapsed overnight. I mean, every restaurant, you know, food service, everyone who sells fresh seafood, every sushi restaurant essentially ramped way down. Hmm. And what did that do to the production sector? It bottomed it out. It was catastrophic. You know, if that's how you made your livelihood, this was a catastrophic hit. So And then, you know, as it sort of has rebuilt, we've had a sort of had something I would refer to as supply chain weirding. You know, you have all sorts of things that happened during the pandemic, some of which will become permanent. For example, uh, freezer capacity became a huge deal. If you're sitting on all this fresh product, you know, fish is sort of like milk. It's got a a shelf life, right? It's going to go bad, fresh fish. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the creation of shelf stability through freezing and other, you know, value creation created products ramped up significantly and just sort of changed some of the dynamics. At the same time, a lot of the regulatory authorities removed um, oversight mechanisms, like observers on boats, for good reason. There's a health risk and, um, and some of those provisions, you know, are meant to be temporary. We've got to fight to make sure they're only temporary because they're there for good reason. We fought for years to get them put in place. We have to do that in a way that, you know, respects the current situation we're in. But we don't want to see rollback of well-intentioned, long-fought-for wins on environmental um, uh, 
practice, essentially ensuring better production practices. At the same time, as these you know product categories recover, um, there still is massive supply chain disruption for businesses worldwide. And uh, that's going to change the nature of how certain things happen in the seafood business and in other ocean sectors. Walmart made an announcement publicly that they're going to invest heavily in place-based sustainability programs for their 12 priority commodities, including three seafood ones. Um, and that's, that's very heartening. Many other businesses have followed suit. Um, I will say that I think that what the broader dynamic that was under the surface um, prior to the pandemic and still now is becoming more and more prevalent is just what does the consumption patterns of the next generation, what does that do to drive the business model, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's increasingly, you know, at the thesis for the reputational risk of businesses and their need to invest in sustainability programs and supply chain stability. I mean, literally sourcing, can you get the product? Is it coming from a place that's well-managed? You can ensure you can continue to sell it 10 years from now. So those are, you know, it's what, um, what our founder, Peter Seligman, uh, calls enlightened self-interest. Yeah, it's perfect. It's a massive, massive challenge uh, there. And you've done such a brilliant job on breaking it down for us. And Jack, I so appreciate this. Uh, there's more to discuss. Uh, we'd like to circle back in, in a few months and, and see how things are going and maybe talk a little bit about uh, Asia Pacific specifically in terms of some of the challenges and, and things that you're seeing here. But great starting point. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Jack Kittinger, Senior Director at Conservation International's Center for the Oceans and Vice President of the NGO's Global Fisheries and Aquaculture Program. As our conversation suggested, there's a lot of territory to cover here. The implications for ocean health are far-reaching, and for anyone, anywhere, who thinks they are untouched by the demise of our oceans, you should think twice. At the most existential level, our oceans produce what we need to live, oxygen. Second to that, it houses a food source upon which 40% of the human race is dependent. The UN Food and Agricultural Organization estimates that 85-90% to 90 of the ocean's fish stocks are fully exploited or overfished, and while fish farming or aquaculture has exploded as an industry, generating $160 billion annually and representing half of all seafood consumed, aquaculture practices are rife with poor and unsustainable practices. The point is this, it's no longer enough to stand by and allow free market forces to determine the number of commercial fishermen or number of fish farms. There's more demand than supply, and unless nations step in and agree on how to safeguard the oceans, we all are at risk. Attacking government subsidies for commercial fishing is a good first step, says Jack, and he's optimistic that ongoing negotiations will help address the problem to bring market forces into line. Beyond that, there's the challenge of reducing, monitoring, and penalizing commercial fishermen who are pushing fish stocks to the brink. While pointing the finger isn't always the best way to get results, there are some countries that allow their commercial fishermen to operate with impunity. According to the IUU Fishing Index, a site established to track illegal, unreported, and unregulated commercial fishing, China ranked far and away number one, a dubious achievement. Not only does China house the world's largest fishing fleet, but it is, in effect, belligerent with respect to honoring codes of conduct. 
That includes everything from entering sovereign waters, to using illegal nets and gear, to decimating shark and other endangered sea life. China isn't alone. Other countries, including Taiwan, Vietnam, and Russia, have poor track records as well. Jack says there's no replacement for countries regulating and holding their fishing sectors accountable. Beyond that, technology, he points out, shows promise for tracking and monitoring supply chains. By keeping the pressure on and the population well-informed on what's at stake, he still sees hope for the ocean and for the people whose lives depend on it. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Inside Asia. Next time you take a stroll beside the ocean, I hope you'll think well of her. Please share this podcast and others with friends and colleagues. We have over 180 episodes available on our website or wherever you search for and listen to your podcasts. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.